I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose, an online philanthropic marketplace that connects donors to public school teachers who request supplies for their classroom projects across the United States. These supplies range from glue to microscopes, instruments, and books. Charles started Donors Choose in 2000 while he was a public school teacher in the Bronx who faced his own shortage of supplies for the projects he wanted to create with his students. The organization has raised over $300 million from more than 1.5 million citizen philanthropists, benefiting almost 15 million students. Welcome. Thank you. How does Donors Choose work? So we do three things to ensure the integrity of our philanthropic marketplace. First, we vet and authenticate each classroom project before it's posted to the public site. Second, when the project is funded, we don't give cash to the teacher. We purchase the resources and have them delivered to the classroom. And then finally, every teacher for every project publishes photos of the project in action, a thank you note, an impact letter, a cost report showing how every dollar was spent, and students write those thank you letters. How did the idea of Donors Choose first come to you? Well, I was a history teacher at a high school in the Bronx for five years. And during my first year of teaching, my colleagues and I would spend a lot of our own money on copy paper and pencils and other supplies. And we would talk in the teacher's lunchroom about books that we wanted our students to read and a field trip we wanted to take them on and a pair of microscopes that we needed for a science experiment. And I just kind of figured that there must be people out there who'd want to help teachers like us if they could see exactly where their money was going. So uh, that, that spawned the idea. It spawned the idea, but there wasn't lots of crowdsourcing at the time in 2000 when you started Donors Choose. How did you think about the mechanics of this idea specifically? Yeah, crowdfunding was years away from even being a word. And actually, when we did launch, people the only comparison point was to eBay. People would refer to us as a philanthropic eBay for teachers and donors to connect. When I uh, sketched out DonorsChoose.org, it was literally with pencil and paper. And so I didn't have a whole lot of online reference points at the time. It was really just the inspiration of my colleagues and sort of just feeling like we ought to tap into all these ideas that, that teachers like my colleagues had for helping their students. And if we could do that, and if we could then uh, uh, mobilize uh, citizen philanthropists, which which also was a term that, w- that we kind of invented for purposes of this model. If we could connect those two groups, then my colleagues and I would be able to get our students those books and take them on that field trip and do that science experiment. It was, it was really kind of just gut instinct. Were you surprised by how little support you had when you came to school? Well, I'd gone to a a private high school where uh, we went on field trips into the woods and we had graphing calculators for trigonometry and the supplies to do just about any art project. We didn't want for anything. And then when I started teaching in the Bronx, I saw firsthand that all schools are not created equal. And I I was expecting that kind of disparity, that, that kind of inequity. But, uh, but the scale of it did, did surprise me. And I was lucky. I was teaching at a high school that was newly constructed and was a really nice place. But even there, um, uh, you know, the book that I wanted my students to read was Little House on the Prairie. And um, my students, even those who had never left New York City, loved this book. Uh, but the school system was not about to underwrite copies of Little House on the Prairie for each of my students. And so I would, I would wake up and go to the copy shop, uh, open 24 hours a day every morning before school and make photocopies of, of that day's section of Little House on the Prairie, which probably violated a lot of copyright laws. And, um, and it was actually then 
when I was making those photocopies that I figured, like, all right, I, I bet there are people out there who'd want to help us out. You mentioned you went to private school, a private high school. This is St. Paul's, the boarding school. And you funded the first 10 projects or so just as a proof of concept. W- what were the, the projects that you put on because you needed the supplies and which you funded anonymously? Yeah, well, when I had uh, created the the first site, version one, it was super rudimentary. I needed to get my colleagues to try out the site and post the first projects. And my mom made a, a paired dessert that I used to bribe them into creating the first projects. And those first projects were the health teacher seeking uh, baby think-it-over dolls for a pregnancy prevention unit. The, these are dolls which cry at three in the morning and need to be fed and uh, show a teenager what their responsibilities would be, where they to have a kid. And the English teacher wanted to get his students ready for the SAT, so he requested test prep books. The art teacher wanted to do a wall-to-wall quilt with each student sewing a square for which she needed fabric and thread and needles. And actually, the other history teacher and I we wanted our students to meet Mokhtar Tayeb, who had been profiled in The New Yorker after escaping from modern-day slavery in Mauritania. And our students had just finished reading the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, and we thought how amazing it would be if our students could meet someone in person who himself had escaped from slavery. And so our project was to bring in Mokhtar Tayeb so, so our students could meet this man. And those were four uh, of the first 10 projects created on our site. Why did your mom have to incentivize uh, the teachers to put their projects? Well, because at the time, you know, this was a site that was totally unproven. I didn't actually know any donors. And so I was asking my colleagues to take an hour out of their days. Mm-hmm. And I figured uh, I would I would need to give them a, a, a material incentive to do that since from their perspective, they presumed that they were... Um, just kind of spending an hour as a favor to me and that their classroom request would not actually be fulfilled. And to their surprise, it was fulfilled by you. My aunt, who's a nurse, funded the first project. But after that one, I didn't know any more donors. And so I did have to fund my colleagues' projects myself. But I did so anonymously. And that made my colleagues mistakenly think that the website actually worked. And that rumor spread across the Bronx prompting hundreds of other teachers to create projects on our site, projects that needed a whole lot more money uh, than than what I could afford to fund. And by the way, I could only afford to fund even those first 10 projects because I was still living at home with my parents and they weren't charging me any rent, so I could spare some of my teacher's salary. Speaking of teacher's salary, did you have the expectation upon graduating from Yale that you wanted to be a teacher for the long term? Or what was your your ambition professionally? Or did you not know? I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was in high school. I had this uh, English teacher and wrestling coach. His name was Mr. Buxton, and he made he was just an inspiration. I figured that if anybody ever looked up to me the way that I looked up to Mr. Buxton, I would have done my share in life. And so um, since I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. What did your parents do? My dad was a lawyer, uh, and my mom raised me and my brother. And your dad had a stroke uh, 20 years ago, which precluded him from practicing law. So how did your family support itself after that? Well, my dad had worked hard enough and and been successful enough to have um, enough of a a pension, enough of a a nest egg to be able to support him. And um, so I still consider myself... Uh, lucky uh, in terms of the the upbringing I've had and the you know the resources available to me. Did you feel like your home life in any way influenced you know what what you're doing now? Were you civic minded uh, or? 
Well, my parents did always encourage me to pursue whatever job I would most enjoy doing and have fun at. There, there was never any pressure to take the, you know whatever job would would make the most money. So, so in that sense, I, I have them to thank for feeling uh, liberated and encouraged to to be a teacher. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose, a philanthropic marketplace connecting public school teachers who request supplies for their classrooms with citizen philanthropists, members of the public who make contributions. You mentioned that word spread throughout the Bronx. How quickly did that word spread across the Bronx in the early days? It spread pretty quickly. Within just a few months of launching the site, there were there must have been at least 50 projects created by other teachers in the Bronx at other schools. And I did not know how I was going to get those funded. But my students uh, volunteered after school for about four months to help me out. What what grade? Uh, These were 10th and 11th graders. And I think they could see the potential of this experiment to change their lives at school. I think they also felt bad for me. And so that's why they volunteered for for several months to spread word to potential donors. And they addressed and compiled 2,000 letters by hand to people all over the country telling them about this website where someone with $10 could be a hero. Um, And we sorted the mail ourselves because we wanted to get the cheapest postal rate. And so like every desk in my classroom was piled high with letters. And and then we carted the sorted letters to the post office, crossed our fingers, and it worked. My students' letter-writing campaign generated $30,000 in donations to projects on our site. Whom were those letters sent to? Were just friends of your students or relatives of your students? They, they were actually uh, the alumni directories of the high school and college that I had gone to, which I'm not sure was strictly legal, but uh, what was forbidden was mechanical reproduction of the addresses. And so by handwriting every address, I felt that that was manual reproduction and that we would be just safe uh, of, of the authorities. And actually, my students had fun. You could see uh, what jobs people had, and my mm-hmm. students decided that they needed to write letters to all of the lawyers and doctors mm-hmm. who had gone to Yale, and so they sent them letters. Interesting that you used a very old-school mechanism or means to galvanizing support of a very new-school, online, innovative system. Did you think about that? Well, you could think of DonorsChoose.org as as a bit of a a, a new school uh, surface to an old school core. When a donor funds a project on our site, they get a thank you note. Uh, They get photos of the project taking place that are digitally published to the project page. But then the best thing they get are handwritten student thank you letters. And we've strategically decided to keep those student thank you letters old school, physical, analog. And if you ask someone who's been on our site to recollect their experience, what they will immediately remember is that they got handwritten thank you letters from the students. By the way, were you a a thank you note family? Were you deep into that? I mean, I have some friends who write thank you notes for every little thing, you know, versus others who might just send a nice email. Where where was your family on that spectrum? My mom would not have told you that I lived up to any standard of thank you note writing, but um, but at least I knew that there was such a standard, <laughs> even if I was not living up to it. I want to talk about uh, supporters more generally. The site was successful due to word of mouth for the first two or three years. And then you had a real pop uh, in popularity in 2003 when Oprah Winfrey discovered you. Could you tell me about that pivot moment? Sure. Well, um, 
After 9-11, a lot of the teachers at the public schools beside Ground Zero created projects on our site to recover from the attacks on the World Trade Center. And the one, the, the first reporter to pay any attention to these projects was Jonathan Alter of Newsweek at the time. And he would later write a one-paragraph blurb about this philanthropic experiment growing out of a Bronx classroom that Oprah Winfrey's producers caught. And uh, so in, in 2003, Oprah did a, just a lovely story about our site. My, I can remember um, that my students were on the best behavior I had ever seen them exhibit when, when, uh, when Oprah's uh, car came to come get me uh, after school. And, and her story really uh, inspired a lot of people, not just to donate to classroom projects on our site, but to ask about whether our site could expand to other parts of the country. You had such an acceleration in traffic that I believe, it, did the site crash? Is that right? Or the what, what happened? Our site melted down when Oprah talked about DonorsChoose.org. I think at one moment there were 17,000 people within the same half second who were simultaneously trying to access our site, and it fell down. But we did get back up, and, and about a quarter million dollars of donations were made to classroom projects. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose. We'll hear more from Charles coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose, an online charity that connects citizen philanthropists, members of the public, with public school teachers in all 50 states. Charles started Donors Choose in 2000 while he was a public school teacher in the Bronx and had to use his own money to pay for supplies for his students. And then in 2007, Stephen Colbert becomes a supporter, and he's, he's a member of your board. How did he find out about the project? Well, back in 07, 08, uh, Stephen decided to enter the South Carolina Democratic presidential primary. And he, he faced, I think, a bit of a challenge, which was that members of the Colbert Nation wanted to support Stephen wanted to financially support his candidacy, but I'm sure that in Stephen's mind, he didn't want his uh, viewers and supporters giving their hard-earned money to a campaign that, that at least at some level was satire, and, and yet he needed to give them an outlet. And what he did was he launched a philanthropic presidential straw poll on DonorsChoose.org where you could donate to a classroom project in honor of your favorite candidate, basically a philanthropic contest between candidate supporters. And Stephen decided that he was going to win that philanthropic presidential straw poll, which he did. People donated almost $80,000 to classroom projects in South Carolina, which pushed Stephen ahead of all the other candidates, both Democrat and Republican. It's interesting when you're relaying the story, you're almost speaking like he speaks. It's, uh, this might be... That's uh, the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. How did Stephen Colbert find out about you? I think that was uh, thanks to two people. One was Craig Newmark of Craigslist, who was going on the Colbert Report and uh, to his incredible generosity, was willing to talk about Craigslist for only a couple of minutes and then spend the rest of his interview talking to Stephen about DonorsChoose.org. And then we also have um, our board member, Jonathan Alter, to thank uh, that that uh, reporter. He, too, managed to, to, I think, whisper in Stephen's ear about this site that he might want to check out. 
in addition to the foundations and the Oprahs of the world, um, I want to talk about individuals who, you know, are anonymous, uh, just members of the public. The smallest donation one can make uh, is a dollar. But there's a story of a woman in California who gave $1.3 million. Can you tell that story briefly? Yes. Well, I uh, got to work one morning and there was a voicemail uh, that I listened to from a woman, an elderly woman, who sounded like she might might just be having trouble making a $5 donation. I called her back just out of courtesy, and she asked how many projects there were on the site from California teachers. And I looked, and there were about 2,100 projects from California. And then she asked how much it would cost to fund them all. And I took out a calculator, and average price of uh, average project costing $600 said, oh, $1.3 million would, would fund every California classroom request. And she said, okay, and, and she hung up, and I figured I wouldn't hear from her again. But three days later, we got a $1.3 million check in the mail. And on the first day back to school, we were able to fully fund every single California teacher's classroom project request on our site in one magical surprise moment. And the response was was just amazing. And the, the reaction we saw from not just teachers, but even from the general public, even from the Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, who called up this woman, uh, and he didn't have his assistant call ahead of him. Arnie Duncan just picked up the phone directly, and this woman thought that he must be a prank caller. And so our Secretary of Education had to spend a couple minutes convincing this woman that he was not a prank phone caller. Did she, by the way, uh, gift repeatedly? The following year? You or? know, she passed away about six weeks later. So that what she did was was maybe her, her last philanthropic act. The concept of citizen philanthropists, not the ones giving the $1.3 million, but the other ones. What is the demographics or what is the, the makeup or the nature of the people contributing? Our, our reason for being is the $10 donor who can express a personal passion, like the town where they grew up or the sport they played in high school or their favorite author, and then see classroom projects that match their passion and give to the one that makes their eye twinkle and see where their dollars are going and hear back from the students and teacher they chose to help. So that, that's, our, that's, that's our core. That, that's why we exist. They, they range in age and, and background and geography. About half of them are motivated by the cause of educational inequity. And another half of them are on our site because they love the model. The cause is the cause of educational inequity isn't as important to them as this new ability to be a full-fledged philanthropist. What are some of your favorite projects? I have a lot of favorites. I'll think just recently I was looking at a teacher in Michigan in a rural low-income part of Michigan. There's a lake nearby her classroom, and she and her sixth graders have been hatching native lake trout because the, the their lake was uh, terribly polluted a couple decades ago, and they have been hatching native lake trout and reintroducing them uh, to the lake. But they're not certain whether or not the baby lake trout that they're hatching are actually thriving on the stone reef that they installed in the lake to protect those those baby trout. Mm. And so the teacher was requesting two underwater robots for her students to be able to monitor whether the lake trout fry were actually thriving on this reef. Which of course. I've, right. Like, I, I would be incapable of coming up with that project on, on all sorts of dimensions. Um, and it's, it's an example among thousands of the teachers who use our site not simply to get resources that that are urgently needed for their students, but to come up with projects that will bring learning to life that, that are just totally wild and innovative. 
How about another one? Well, I think also of projects where the teacher is requesting a resource that is of almost mortal consequence. I remember a teacher in North Carolina whose first grade student had died in a fire over the summer because this was a part of North Carolina where a lot of the homes don't have smoke detectors. And this teacher came back to school and created a project requesting 100 smoke detectors for each of her uh, students' classmates to install in their homes and teach their families about fire safety as a, as a sort of a kind of living memorial to their fallen classmate. And I think of a, another teacher in Oakland who had a student with spastic cerebral palsy, uh, a girl named Cindy, who um, couldn't uh, communicate with her parents or with her friends because of this disability. But Cindy's teacher was able to take Cindy to try a voice output device where with hand controls, you can you can emit sounds and, and communicate words. And it turned out that Cindy was able to use this device really successfully and, and speak with her parents and with her friends for the first time. Uh, But her insurance didn't cover this voice output device, which was still kind of experimental. And so her teacher put a project up on Donors Choose that was called Give Cindy a Voice. Mm -hmm. And that was not uh, figurative. It was literally to give Cindy a voice. And and there are more projects than than most would appreciate that that really get to um, uh, issues of life and survival and and, uh, uh, sustenance. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose, an online charity that connects citizen philanthropists, members of the public, with public school teachers in all 50 states. Charles started Donors Choose in 2000 while he was a public school teacher in the Bronx and had to use his own money to pay for supplies for his students. You know, it seems like from 10,000 feet, you've had kind of a charmed existence. Um, What was harder for you than you thought? In, in all of this? I mean, I know that it's still a forced march, even, you know, getting all of the projects funded on donors, uh, donors choose that, only, you know, 70% of the projects uh, get funded. But what did you have to kind of course correct? Well, if I could rewind, there's one thing I would do over, and that is the name donors choose. Uh, the, the syllables of which, the sounds of which do not roll off the tongue easily, mm. nor do they stick to the brain. If I tell someone donorschoose.org and ask them 30 minutes later to tell the name back to me, they will struggle to remember it. Um, or they'll do funny things with it, like call it Donors Choice or Donors.org or who knows what. And I wish I could go back in time and engage a, a branding naming expert. Uh, there, there's a, a school of thought that people call the lean startup uh, methodology, which basically posits that when you come up with an idea, you should launch it in its minimally viable form so that you can start getting feedback from customers and users as soon as possible. Do not perfect the thing, go live with the thing. And I prototypes, think, basically. Prototypes, that's right. And I think the one exception to the lean startup school of thought is brand naming, which is the, a brand name is the one thing that you cannot launch in a minimally viable form and just iterate on as you get feedback from customers. In our case, at least, before you know it, there's been a news story about your site, naming your site, and then you think, well, we can't change the name now because then that we'll never be able to refer anyone to that news story. And, and so then before you know it, you're, you're oh. locked into that brand name. And, uh, and, and so if I could rewind, I would, I, would, uh, I would try and do that over. What might you call it? You know, uh, clearly it's not just that uh, uh, I was moving too quickly. I, I'm, I'm not good at coming up with brand names because I struggle, mm-hmm. I struggle to answer that question. What are your children's names? George and Helen. And they're stuck with those. Are you happy with those names? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm, I'm absolutely happy with them. 
I want to talk about some other efforts uh, that you've undertaken, uh, one of which was a 2011 hackathon. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, the hackathon gave the American public two opportunities. One was our API, which enables people to build apps using DonorsChoose.org content. Really, it's a way for people to reinvent and reshape and and uh, redesign the DonorsChoose.org experience. The other opportunity we gave people was to rock out on our data. And the data refers to all the information attached to all those 600,000 classroom projects that have been funded on our site, created by a quarter million teachers at 60% of all the public schools in the country. And those projects and, and the mountain of information that each project contains about the latitude and longitude of the school, the poverty rate of the school, the subject area, every book and book title and ISBN number in the project request, every keyword in the project essay, is a mountain of data attached to each project. And in that data, you can find teachers trying to tell the powers that be what resources are most needed in their classrooms. And you can look at this data based on neighborhood or city or state and and effectively listen more closely to teachers and see uh, what uh, kindergarten teachers in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn have in common when it comes to their classroom needs. You can see what technology devices California teachers most need in their classrooms. Uh, you could see what books Louisiana sixth grade teachers think are most effective at getting kids hooked on reading as expressed by the projects that they're creating on our site. We realized that we might be able to give voice to classroom teachers at the budget-making or policy-making table as, as a dream. And, and we figured that uh, our data could uh, provide insights that would enable uh, government officials to more wisely spend uh, education funding dollars. On your site, uh, you, you talk about just some of the aspects of this data, and uh, you mentioned before some projects that were your favorite that you know were of mortal consequence. And it turns out when teachers use pessimistic language, which in a sense fuels a sense of urgency versus optimistic language, their projects are more likely to get funded. That's right. There are all sorts of things we can discover in our data, not just about what teachers most need and what's on teachers' minds, but about the this kind of psychological dynamics of citizen philanthropy and of crowdfunding and, and micro-giving. And we've discovered all sorts of funny and quirky, uh, idiosyncratic things. What are some of those? So as one example, uh, we tested using either a heart icon or a star icon for people to save a classroom project to consider later. Uh, think of it as like adding it to your wish list. Uh, and when we used a heart icon for people to save a project for later consideration, we saw a material increase in the conversion rate of our overall website. Uh, something about putting a heart out there uh, versus a star uh, really, really gets people. Um, I'll give you one other example. We had read a study showing that people are more likely to donate to hurricane relief if the name of the hurricane is the same as theirs, or even if the name, if the first letter of the hurricane is the same as the first letter of their name. Uh, so you, Jessica, are more likely to donate to Hurricane Relief, even for Hurricane John, than you are for Hurricane Sarah. Mm. And that prompted us to think, all right, we've got a million and a half donors, uh, that of course include their names, and we've got a quarter million teachers. Why don't we match 
these people up based on their last name. And so on Valentine's Day, we sent donors uh, a note saying, roses are red, violets are blue, give to a teacher with the same name as you. And we gave a little PS uh, showing a classroom project from a teacher with the exact same last name as the donor. And donor's response to that email was three times uh, greater than their response to uh, a similar poem that showed them a classroom project near to their location. So way more powerful than geo-targeting was name matching, um, one, of, one of a whole bunch of things we, we've discovered about what, what excites people to donate. You alluded to this before a little bit, how you were trying or you were hoping to have some influence on legislation or on budget allocation uh, based on the data and just based on, you know, your own experience at the organization. How successful have, have you been? We cannot point to any budget line item in any state or city uh, education uh, allocation that was inspired by our data yet. We hope that within uh, a couple years' time, we will be able to point to uh, millions, and in our dream world, billions of dollars of government education spending that has become smarter, more efficient, more responsive, mm -hmm. because policymakers can now see classroom needs as they emerge in real time. People have probably ascertained this by now by listening to you, but you, ha you have a lot of energy. Uh, and you've demonstrated some moxie, even with the um, the photocopying of Little House on the Prairie 30 times. Have you always had the reputation of, yeah, Charles Best, boy, he has lots of energy? Uh, I, I, well, when I was a teacher, the way I maintained discipline in my classroom was by being more enthusiastic about the subject material than my students were about whispering with each other, which was could be an exhausting way of maintaining good discipline in the classroom. I think I lacked the the uh, ability to instill fear in teenagers, which which would have been maybe more useful. But um, but no, I I I, uh, I do think that maybe the the best um, way to get people behind. An effort or, or get someone to yes is, is just by being infectiously enthusiastic and, and, by, and by being inquisitive. What are some other examples of your infectious enthusiasm growing up? Gosh, um, well, you know, the, the, the experience growing up that for a weird reason I feel like most relates to, to Donors Choose Now is um, all the woodworking I did when I was a kid. Um, my parents didn't have a TV in the house, and I think that left me with some spare time, and I filled it by... Uh, learning carpentry when I was in kindergarten. I remember going into class with like big saw cuts in my thumbs. And the feeling I got doing woodworking where um, you have to really carefully plan out how all the pieces are going to fit together. But then once you start constructing, then you have to improvise because the, the pieces are not going to fit together exactly as you anticipated. That is so similar and almost like pushes the same buttons as uh, web product development, where you envision a feature and you think, all right, this is how I want the feature to work and this is how I want users to interact with the feature. And then once you actually start building and coding and seeing users interact with the feature, everything changes and you've got to improvise. Um, but but all along the way, just the, the sort of base thrill of, of building and making is there. Um, so I, I, it's like I feel the exact same way that I did when I was woodworking in kindergarten. Your students who helped you write those thousands of letters uh, illicitly to the alumni networks of Yale and St. Paul's School, they're over a decade you know, out of high school now. They're adults. Uh, do you have a sense of what they're doing? 
Yeah. Oh, I have students, former students who are doing all sorts of awesome things. I, I get to keep in touch with them through Facebook. A number of them have volunteered or interned or worked at DonorsChoose.org. One is a social worker. One was a, a Gates scholar uh, who got a full scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic uh, Institute, which is one of the top engineering schools. Um, I, I have students who are, are doing great things. Do you feel that you are a Mr. Buxton to some of those students? Not quite a Mr. Buxton. Mr. Buxton was, was uh, I'm certain, even more of an inspiration to his students than I was to mine. But, um, but hopefully I'm fractionally a Mr. Buxton. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jessica. My guest has been Charles Best, founder of Donors Choose. Coming up, we'll meet John Oranger, founder of Shutterstock. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is John Oranger, founder of Shutterstock, an online marketplace for images, video clips, and music. The content is crowdsourced with photographers, artists, and other contributors uploading their content in exchange for a percent of revenue when their work is purchased. John started Shutterstock in 2003, and the company went public in 2012. John lives in New York City, where Shutterstock is headquartered. Welcome. Thanks. You grew up in Scarsdale, New York. What do your parents do? My dad was a science teacher New Rochelle. My mom uh, taught special ed in Yonkers. And how would they describe you? Uh, I think I was, a, I was a curious kid. I was constantly taking things apart, putting them back together, trying to build stuff. Um, I was always interested in how things worked. And once I learned how to started learning how to code, started to realize I can tell a computer what to do. That, I found that to be fascinating. You had a, a few odd jobs, you know, as you were growing up. You did fix people's computers. Yep. Uh, you taught guitar, and the interesting thing, actually, about your guitar is that you you wanted to teach guitar, so you learned how to play guitar first, so that you could teach it. Yeah, well, it actually turned out, um, and I think a lot of teachers would say this, that the best way to learn something is actually to, to try to teach it. Um, so I started putting up flyers around the around Scarsdale with little pull-off tabs with my phone number on it, um, and I quickly learned how to kind of put it together a couple of lessons. You went to Stony Brook uh, for college, and then you pursued a master's at Columbia in computer science. What were some of the jobs that you held uh, after graduating? Um, actually, I never, I never really got a job. I had this skill I could program. So even f- in high school, what I was doing was I was creating little uh, kind of Windows applications. At the time, Windows was the, the most popular operating system. Um, and if I could create something that uh, people would spend some money on, uh, that was kind of exciting. So I started to look for problems people had. Uh, one of those problems were pop-ups, uh, these kind of annoying advertisements that would interfere with your web browsing. The first one was kind of a security and privacy tool. When cookies were starting to become an issue, uh, people were afraid they were being tracked. In the beginning of all these businesses, I would do every part of them. I was a customer service rep. I was the programmer. Um, I, uh, I was the designer. Uh, I did QA. You also, after college, you tried to start a dating site. Yeah, there were a whole bunch of different sites that that I kind of iterated through, and turns out there was a lot of competition in the in the, in the dating website world. The website that that I created with a few friends didn't didn't take off, so we kind of ditched it pretty quickly. What was it called? 
It was called Particular Personals. What were some other companies that you kind of tried and failed at or were working on before you launched Shutterstock? One was a legal services firm that would monitor people's trademarks. Um, that worked for a little while, uh, made some revenue, didn't really go far. But what it would do is it would monitor uh, a trademark that you registered. As other people were registering things that maybe sounded like it or could infringe on it, since as a trademark owner, it's your responsibility to defend those and to find them yourself, this tool would find it for you. It turned out uh, there was a lot of competition in that space too. What was your parents' view of what you were doing even before you know starting Shutterstock coding and trying to start internet companies? More than 10, I think you tried. Yeah, I think they... I think they knew that I could be self-sufficient and I could, I would be fine because there was cash coming into my, my account usually doing something. Um, but they probably didn't quite know what, what, what to think. But there were a couple of dynamics going on. I did not want to get a job. In fact, mm-hmm. I was pretty sure I wasn't employable. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to last anywhere even if I got a job. Did you ever have a conventional job? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I probably for a couple of days delivered pizza in high school. So I kind of I kind of knew deep down I had to figure something else out. I always knew I could I could fall back on an hourly gig of, of, of fixing people's computers. Um, and I also knew that if I needed to get a job as a software developer, I could find that. Um, so that kind of took some risk out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, it allowed me to pursue and fail. Um, and so I just kept iterating through everything I could find. I used every website I could find. I used every product I can find. Mm-hmm. Um, I became kind of uh, uh, like an online uh, expert in, in everything that was being developed out there. What I realized is that when I was marketing all of these products, it was hard to find images. That was the germ, in a way, for Shutterstock because, as you're saying, you needed images to go along with the content to make it more appealing to potential customers. And you started to create images yourself. You bought a camera and went out and just shot hundreds of thousands of, of photographs. At what point were you were you thinking, you know what, this is this is going to be yet another business that I'm going to try? Well, at that point, the, the pop-up blocker sort of went right out of business because Microsoft uh, built it for free into Internet Explorer, which turned out to be uh, a very successful failure for me because it it let me kind of sit back and think about uh, what else I could create. Um, I knew I was interested in photography, but I also knew that as an internet marketer, there was no real resource out there to um, easily get images. Um, there was this rights managed model where lots of photos were sold under at the time, uh, where you had to tell this calculator where you were going to use the image, how you're using the image, how long you're using the image for, what territory. The internet has no territory. When you put an image out on the internet, the whole world is going to see it. Um, and you can't just pay for the United States, for instance, like you could in the print world. You know, I looked at lots of uh, these stock photo companies and tried to figure out, could I create this content? Mm-hmm. Um, if I spent a whole year just creating content, would I be able to compete with these sites? I bought a digital SLR. I bought a Canon Digital Rebel uh, in 2003. It was one of the first digital SLRs to drop below $1,000 and I would just shoot everything around me. And I iteratively became a stock photographer really quick. I started to put these shots um, on a website called Shutterstock and charge a one-time fee for them per month. Download whatever you need. And uh, the images actually started to fly off the shelves. 
I was watching the data that came in on the companies that were buying, and it was companies of all sizes. I realized I wasn't the only one having this mm-hmm. problem. The images I created were not that great. I mean, I was not a good photographer. What were some of them? They were um, the the coffee mug that I was drinking out of in the morning. They were people walking down the street. If I found a cool spot to take pictures of New York City, I would go to to a, to a roof deck and do that. Um, it was everything I could find around me, including my friends, who I eventually talked into signing model releases. You mentioned that you were surprised by the response. Was there one or two particular visitors or customers who bought and you thought, oh, wow, Dunkin' Donuts even wants to use this? It lent some credibility to it? Um, I don't I don't remember too many specifics, but um, I do remember that I recognized the companies coming in. They were agencies that when I Googled them and I looked up the, the, the business, they represented companies that I understood what was going on at that point. The people that were buying my images had no other option. It, you know, we mentioned your guitar playing before, and, you know, I thought about, you know, how you learned how to play guitar in order to teach it just as you learned how to take photos in order to sell them. Um, yeah, it, I think that's an important part of kind of these these businesses that I started is that I was always the first customer. Um, I was always trying to figure out how to how to how to get the images that now I was going to try to supply the world with. You see that demand is higher than you might have thought. What came next? The demand started to outstrip the supply. I was able to create tens of thousands of images. I realized quickly I needed millions. So if I was able to not be the only contributor and create an open-sourced kind of uh, crowd-sourced model where anyone could sell. Um, could I do the math here and, and figure it out? Um, and I settled on 25 images a day. It seemed like uh, at that rate, business, uh, a single user was able to get everything they needed throughout a month. And then I could back into a calculation where I could pay out 30% of everything that was coming in uh, to contributors. And at that point, I was able to kind of open up the marketplace to both sides. We take for granted the words like crowdsource. Oh, I crowdsourced it. But, you know, that that's that's not a term that was ubiquitous or well-known in the vernacular in early 2000s. How did you source from the crowd? I I started with um with online forums. I found these forums of people that were photographers helping each other out to create a better shot. So the the kind of idea I had at that point was I contacted a few of them and I said, you guys are creating images just like I am. I'm making this much money off them. Would you like to too? And if you'd like to refer your friends, I'll pay you for the referrals too. So I started to kind of create some influencers. At the time, they were excited um, about about being able to monetize something that they n- were never able to monetize before. You have 70,000 contributors. Who were the, the first one or two? What was their profile? They were all people that loved photography but had something else as their main job. So they were hobbyist photographers that wanted to get better at doing what they were doing. They wanted to buy that next lens uh, that has always been expensive. This was the thing that they would do the second they left work. That you, was the profile. Now, what is the range of, of income that you know a contributor might experience? Contributors make any, anywhere from a few dollars a month to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. 
There are definitely small businesses that have been created. There are definitely uh, sole proprietors that are making more than they did at their jobs now. Mm-hmm. What was like a, a pivot moment for you? I mean, you saw from the inception that there was real demand and you got contributors to, to, to buy in. Was there a pivot moment for you where, you know, things started to escalate even more so? The, the the moment that this started to, that I started to realize that this could work was when I was able to get supply in that met demand, mm. and that's important because the entire marketplace is kind of organically driven, right? And I didn't realize this at first, but what was happening was contributors would come in, they would upload some images, and they would watch what was happening in real time. They would get paid. They would watch what was getting sold, and then they would create more images like that. And when I started to see that happen, I started to realize that the entire marketplace, what was going to be critical was that I need to keep that connection going because um, otherwise the contributors are never going to know what the buyers want and vice versa. So there were other agencies that started at the time where this wasn't the case. And and it's important that that that's there because that's what creates the network effect. And what what was going on with John Oranger, like your personal life at the time while all this is happening? I was I was starting to get used to the fact that I wasn't a one man show anymore, and I had to uh, learn how to manage people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that turned out to be pretty difficult. I suddenly went from never. Uh, working in an office to having a whole group of people that were my employees and having to get out of your pajamas if you needed to, yeah. right? I mean, you're at, you're at, you're at home. <laughs> I was working from home, so now now I was starting to to have an office I would go to every day. From the get go, uh, you did not raise venture capital, um, partly because you didn't need it, or was that wholly because you didn't need it? It was. It was it was because I didn't need it. Um, it was also because I didn't know how to get it. It was also because New York was not a place where people, where venture capitalists understood tech companies. Um, so I was able to kind of uh, uh, stay under the radar for many years, and kind of and build this pro- company that was constantly profitable um, because I had made it really efficient. And at what point did people start to recognize you as well? I mean, they're generating a lot of revenue. You have a, an IPO in 2012, and six months after, you're over a billion in market cap. When did the industry start recognizing you, even before the, I, the IPO? Well, photographers also always knew about us, and designers did too, but it's, it's a pretty... It's a pretty concentrated uh, world of people. We're a business-to-business product, so we don't show up on consumer screens. Um, by 2008, just about every graphic designer around knew about us. A lot of businesses knew about us. Around 2010 is when people started to notice. Uh, and then around 2012 was, uh, was when we went public, and then there was no going back. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is John Oranger, founder of Shutterstock, a crowdsourced marketplace for photos, illustrations, graphics, video clips, and music. The company has over 50 million images that small businesses, corporations, and other users can purchase at affordable prices. John launched Shutterstock in 2003, and the company went public in fall 2012. John has been called Silicon Alley's first billionaire, meaning that Shutterstock was the first tech company launched in New York City to earn a market cap of above a billion dollars. And John's owning more than 50% of the company 
thus made you the first nude Silicon Alley billionaire. But it's ironic that you took no venture capital because Silicon Alley is, we think of as, you know, these venture-backed companies. Yeah, yeah, it is. We did do a private equity round with Insight. Later. Later. But in the beginning, I kind of didn't want someone telling me how to run the business. That was It was always important to me to have complete control over what was going on and, and be as independent as possible. You're now in more than 150 countries and in over 20 languages. What cultural dynamics do you recognize? Are there any kind of patterns that you see, let's say, in the Netherlands versus New York versus Japan? Yeah, we're all over the world. Yeah. Um, and we answer the phones in New York in 20 different languages. And we translate the site into Japanese as the first language. And what happened was we were able to sell images in a country that we didn't have any customer support for, um, completely self-serve product, uh, just by translating the website. And so once we realized that, we translate the site into 20 different languages from there. The search part of the website is, is important. And we have a whole team of people uh, trying to make sure that uh, your search is local, your search is relevant to, to where you're searching from. If someone in Japan searches for food, you want sushi to come up. If someone in the U.S. searches for food, you want uh, you know hamburger to show up or something something relevant. Do you recognize the site's own f- uh, images out there in the world? Yeah, anywhere from a blog to uh, an online news publication to a billboard uh, would be using our images. Hollywood films use our video. So, what's an example of some films or TV shows? I mean, House of Cards is one. What are some other examples? With stock video, what you can do is you can use uh, use something that may have been hard to create uh, as a transition, for instance. So, documentaries tend to use uh, a city uh, time lapse from sunrise to sunset really quickly. So, um, we have every city on Shutterstock. Uh, and and so documentaries use a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting more and more popular for websites to use video. Mm-hmm. It's getting more popular for advertising to use video. Um, and it's getting more popular uh, for Hollywood to start using stock video because we're getting such amazing creative stuff, and uh, it's it's very well-priced. You're a helicopter pilot. Why are you interested in helicopters? I've always been interested in in helicopters and flying and how they work. And in 2010, I uh, I decided to uh, take take a helicopter lesson. Um, I always wanted to do it, and I took that lesson. And I realized uh, this is something I want to learn. I want to get a license to be able to fly this thing on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while. It took like a year, year and a half. I went through uh, kind of the entire training that any helicopter would pilot would go through. Um, it took me a little longer because I also have the day job to deal with, but um, it was awesome, and uh, and I love it. I still do it up till up till today. You're also taking drumming lessons. I I'm always looking for kind of fun things to learn that are outside the scope of what I do every day. Both flying a helicopter and and, and playing drums, they're they're both they're both t- super tedious to learn. So you have to put all of your concentration into it. Um, I find that when I'm able to get into something like that, um, that kind of uh, distraction helps me with, with, with the other parts of, of my job and my life. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been John Oranger. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. 
This is From Scratch. Mm-hmm.